today. So if you turn in your Bibles there in the Pew Bible, it's number eight, uh, the page number is 847, 849. You'll see the sermon is Stay Awake, which is not really meant for you uh, as much as that's the last phrase mentioned in Mark chapter 13. And Mark chapter 13 is a pretty thorny little chapter. And we're not going to answer all the questions that are in it, but we're going to try to tackle it both this week and next week. And so I'm just going to have you remain seated. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter so it gives you a sense of what Jesus is saying here about the end of time. So beginning in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he or Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring to you a trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son of man, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his own work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in 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 the evening or at midnight or when the cook, the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. I'm uh, encouraging you to sit up and to think hard because it's a lot of material here. And for today, we're just going to try to get a sense of the chapter. And next week, we'll talk about some more application from this chapter to our lives today. But it's going to take the whole time this morning just to get a sense of where we are in the text And what the text is really saying. And then next week we'll get to some more application pieces. But I think getting your your mind around the text as a whole is going to be a helpful start for us. When I was in college, I was walking in downtown Greenville. And I was I can't remember if I was going to the library or where I was headed towards. But an elderly man came rushing towards me and said, Jesus has returned. And I was looking around thinking, great, where is he? And he said, well, you've missed him. And I said, well, apparently you've missed him as well. We're both in real trouble here. And so he began to talk to me about how I had missed him. And he hadn't quite missed him. He knew something about him. And he wanted me to tell me. He wanted to tell me about what he knew. Some of you will remember in 1988, there was a book published with this title, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. And 300,000 copies were sent to ministers around the United States, and 4.5 million people bought the book. Trying to learn about the 88 reasons that the rapture was going to happen in September in 1988. The author of that book was Edgar Wisnett, and this was he was quoted as saying this, Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. And if there were a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on the day being September the 12th. Well, September the 12th, as you can attest to, came and went in 1988. And so you'll not be surprised that in 1989 he had made one miscalculation. And so he published the book with 89 reasons it was going to happen in 1989. 
He did so in 1990 and several years later. And the last time we heard from Edgar was 1997. I guess after 10 years of trying to predict the end of the world, he'd given up. We could have read Mark 13 to him before he did all that. If you were to take a sample of Christian television today, you would hear it talk typically in one of two ways. One, how to have financial prosperity. Or two, what's the end of time? Those are typically the the interest points for people. Well, there seems to be no shortage of people willing to take a stab at with some certainty what's going to happen at the very end of time. What are the signs? What are things that we can anticipate? And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13 about the end of the world. This passage is known as the Olivet Discourse. The reason it is, is because when you come out of Jerusalem, you go through a valley. And when you get to the top side of the valley, you're at the top of the Mount of Olives. Most of you be familiar with that as the area that Jesus was in. And he was in an area called the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, it gives you a overlook of the whole city of Jerusalem. And at the very center of the city is the temple. And so the disciples begin to ask some questions on the Mount of Olives and they're looking specifically at the temple. And Jesus is talking both about the end of the temple and the end of all time. This is probably the most problematic text in all of the New Testament, certainly the most problematic in Mark. R. Kent Hughes writes this. The fact is, we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the knotty problems of the Olivet Discourse. Study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we do not know everything. So I'm not going to attempt to solve every knotty problem. I mean, that's part of what you have lunch for, is to go talk about all the knotty problems that the preacher just didn't address that particular day. And then that's why you have email and you can call me with your naughty little question and I can try to unravel it for you if that's possible. But I hope that as we come together on the text, we can at least exercise charity that that we can have a, a, a big heart about trying to come to this some naughty conclusions about what the text is actually saying. I think what we can all agree here as Christians is that Christ returns and he is victorious. That's what we're sure about from the Bible. But he gives us some things to take home with us in Mark chapter 13. And I want to do two things here this morning. I want to review sort of how we got to this particular point. We've been away from Mark for the summer. We've been talking about spiritual disciplines. And so I want to try to get us all back up to speed and how we got to this particular point in Mark chapter 13. And secondly, I want to. Look at the passage as the whole as a whole and see how we would understand it just in the biggest from the from the biggest standpoint. So let's look at um, those two things. And next week we'll talk about some practical applications. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is coming back for me today? How does that intersect how I live my life today? We'll get to that next week. Well, let's review when we've. Looked at Mark, and if you would turn back to me to Mark chapter 3, verse 13, we've really looked at it through the lens of discipleship. That's been the key thing. As we've walked through the passages that we've talked about, we've really been sort of looking at Mark from this 
from the discipleship uh, level, and we've been asking this question. What does it mean or what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus goes up to a mountain. He spends all night praying. And then when he comes down from the mountain, he calls his 12 disciples. And you see that in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And then in verse 14, he says this, And he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. The very first thing that a disciple gets called to do is to be with Jesus. That's the critical piece. And we're going to see it over and over and over again. Keep your eyes on me. Don't get distracted. All kinds of things in life can happen and your head can be on a swivel. And he's saying, disciples, the most important thing is not anything that happens out here, is you keep your eyes on me. Well, if you remember back when we looked after this text, the very first thing that happened is the twelve disciples got together and they went into a town and Jesus began to preach and Jesus' own family came forward and said, we think he's out of his mind. And so the disciples must have been thinking, I've just thrown my whole lot into this guy and his own family is saying he's out of his mind. And at the very same meeting, the scribes, the sort of lawyers at the time, the people who knew the law came forward and said, he's not just out of his mind. He's actually from Satan himself. And you see how quickly the disciples heads could have been turned off of Jesus and he keeps reminding them. You keep your eyes on me. Don't worry about the family. Don't worry about the professor. You keep your eyes on me. And I have no doubt that there are some people here that struggle to keep their eyes on Jesus because of somebody in their family. They struggle to keep their eyes on Jesus because of a professor. Who's come in and say, oh, no, 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 you've gotten it all wrong. I'm going to now tell you what Jesus is like. And as a college student, you just easily have your head turned away from the very thing Christ has said. This is going to happen. It's going to be so easy to look in a different direction. You keep your eyes on me. In Mark chapter four, we find out that the disciples heads aren't easily turned Off of Jesus for those reasons, but they're easily turned when it comes to their life being on the line. Remember when Jesus goes out into the boat, he asks the disciples to cross to the other side and a big storm comes up and they try their hardest to get out of the storm or to get back to the to the uh, shore. And finally, they realize we're going down. And where do they find Jesus? He's in the back of the boat and he's asleep. And what do they say? Don't you care about Me? We're all going down here. And in a very unsettling passage, Jesus doesn't say, yes, I care about you. That's what I want him to say. He says, what about your faith? Have you taken your eyes off me? Remember what I told you. You need to be with me when we're together in the boat. Even if it's going to go down, if you're with me, that's all you need. Remember, just after this, they get to the other side. 
They have an encounter. They row back. And then the first thing that happens is people come towards Jesus and a man named Jairus, a very important synagogue ruler, comes up and says, my daughter is dying. And Jesus says, let's go see her. And they begin the, the trek to Jairus's house where his daughter is. And a, and a bleeding woman comes up and touches the hem of Jesus's cloak. And he turns and he finds the woman and he listens to this woman's story. And while he's listening to the woman's story, what happens at Jairus's house? The daughter dies. And some people come from Jairus's house and they sort of whisper in Jairus's ear near Jesus and they say, don't bother him anymore. She's dead. And Jesus seems to overhear the conversation and he turns to Jairus and says, believe in me. Keep your eyes on me. Do not pay attention to what other people are saying. If I am with you, that's all that matters. And see, in our world, when our lives are in upheaval, when your own life comes back and you find out the report is not what you wanted, it's so easy in distress and turmoil to get your head on a swivel and suddenly you're reaching for every kind of answer. And Jesus is saying in the book of Mark, the most important thing for a believer is you keep your eyes on me. You see, because we're going to get to this text and there's a tremendous amount of upheaval that's going to happen in Mark chapter 13. And all kinds of false Christs are going to come around and they're all going to try to be distracting from who Jesus really is. And he's saying the same thing in Mark 13 as he is in all these other passages. Watch out. Take care. Be aware. Stay awake. You keep your eyes on me. As a disciple, that's the critical thing. I wonder how many of us could give a testimony to times of turmoil. And we lost our focus. Jesus just didn't seem to be answering the bell at the speed that I needed. So I decided I'd take control of the situation. And we find ourselves in worse and worse situations. Keeping our eyes on Christ is the critical piece for a disciple. It's also a critical piece at the end of all time. And so let's look at the text as a whole and see if we can have some understanding of what's happening. How many of you remember, um, I don't know, this was a long time ago now when I was a kid, they had this series of disaster movies. It was like Airplane and Towering Inferno and Earthquake and Tidal Wave, and it was just one after another. And uh, in this one movie called Earthquake, it was new, the surround sound. So you got in there and it sort of felt like you were in an earthquake. Or you might remember, if you're a little bit uh, younger than I am, uh, the new King Kong movie, the big, you know, gorilla walks around town. Or if you're really into the sort of the Japanese animated thing, you remember Godzilla and he'd come in and crush the town all the time. What's what's similar about all of those? They'd always have a scene that looked just like this. There would be a table 
there would be a saucer and a little coffee cup. And when you looked into the coffee cup, what was happening? Little ripples were going across the top of the coffee cup. Little tremors. And you knew, hey, it's just recording a very small event, but something big is going to pop out here any moment now. The little tremor is, that's all it is, a tremor. But the earth is just about ready to quake open. When we get to this passage, that's what's happening in this passage when he, when Jesus is describing the fall of Jerusalem. He's just describing a little ripple, a little tremor. And he's saying, when you see these things happen, that's a little tremor. A big quake is on its way. And so I want you to pay attention. I want you to have your eyes open. I want you to stay awake because following that is going to be the second coming of Christ. The ripple was in 70 A.D. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The reality is the second coming of Christ. And I think we can understand that Jesus is sort of mixing these two realities and sometimes they sort of blend into one. He's talking about the end of the temple and he's also talking about the end of the world. And that happens with some frequency in the Bible. And I think the, the one that I think is easiest for us to pick up on is in Ephesians chapter five. Paul, remember this, he says this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Remember what he says? I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, he's looking at a reality of a marriage and he's saying this marriage is a a two people coming together. But it's just a little tremor compared to Christ coming back for his bride. And so think about this just for a moment. The ecstasy that you feel in a godly marriage is a tremor. The satisfaction you feel in a godly marriage is a little tremor of a much greater joy that's going to happen. When you watch a godly man lay his life down for his wife like Christ laid his life down for the church, it's a little tremor. It's a little tremor of what understanding that Jesus has laid his life down for you and I. And so when we get to this passage, the little tremor is the fall of Jerusalem and the temple to the Romans in 70 A.D. But it's a little tremor that displays a much greater quake that's going to happen later in time. In verse one, let's look at the passage. Jesus has been answering some questions in the temple. He's had a series of questions and we talked about those questions in the spring. He's leaving the, the temple and the disciples are looking at the temple and they're noticing these massive stones Some of them were as big as a boxcar on a train. 
And they're just they're just in awe of how large this thing is. And the temple really was the city of Jerusalem. It it encompassed about a third of the city and mostly everything else about the city served the temple. One of the uh, early church historians says this, the exterior of the building wanted for nothing that could astound either the mind or the eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to divert their eyes. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was overlaid, for all that was not overlaid, overlaid with gold was purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length. And Jesus, when his disciples say, look at the temple, he essentially does the same thing he's been doing all along in verse two. And he says, do you see this temple? You keep your eyes on me. There's a new temple coming where God Almighty can be found. And it's not in this temple any longer. What temple is it? Is Jesus Christ. And he's trying to get the whole world to focus in on him and him alone. And not the temple. And so we look here and then verse 4. They take this short walk and the disciples have to be just not understanding this. No surprise. A lot of things that Jesus say they just don't get. And they say, well now tell us when these things are going to happen. And then when you look through verse 5 through 23, Jesus gives this astonishing detail of what's going to happen both to the disciples and to the temple. He's going to give with great accuracy exactly what's going to happen in the lives of the disciples and what eventually is going to happen to the temple. The first part of the disciples, verses 9 through 13, they are going to suffer. They're going to be handed over. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be forsaken by their family. They're going to be put to death. And Jesus is saying, you must stand firm to the end. You must preach the the gospel to all nations. And that's exactly what the disciples did. Now, I want you to look with me just for a moment at verse 10, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this particular verse. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, you've probably understood this verse or at least heard other people to understand it to mean Christ can't return until every nation hears the gospel. But I don't think that's what this verse is actually saying. I think this verse is saying as a a disciple, you should go proclaim the gospel to all nations. It should be spreading out around the world. But we'll see at the end of the chapter, the master could come back in the home at any point. And so some missionary agencies will take this verse and it'll be sort of their foundation verse where we're trying to reach every people group. And as soon as we reach the last people group, then Jesus could come back. But we're we're sort of hemmed in until we reach that point. And I don't think that's what's saying here. I think when he's talking about all nations, he's not saying literally and specifically it must be to every people group. It just must be spreading around the world. And I want to give you a context for that. For Colossians chapter one, this is what Paul says. And just listen to these words. The gospel that has come to you 
All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now, it's not literally bearing fruit in every people group. It's just spreading out all over the world. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. So Paul is using exaggerated language to say the gospel is continuing to move forward. It's spreading out all across the world. And Jesus is saying, I'm no longer asking people to come to the temple to see God. I'm saying you go out all over the world and spread the gospel. And when you do, you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be beaten and you're going to be forsaken and you're going to be put to death. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation, or maybe a better phrase is the abomination that causes desolation. This is a Old Testament term borrowed from Daniel chapter 11, which means when you see some pagan or outside ruler come into the temple and set himself up or an idol up as an object of worship, where God Almighty alone should be, when you see that happening, then run for the mountains. There will be no protection left in Jerusalem. And so in 70 A.D., that's exactly what happens. The Romans, the the Jewish people had been in revolt. The Romans send in an emperor named Titus, and Titus lays siege to Israel and specifically to Jerusalem. And it was the most horrific Thing you could imagine. They're in this walled city, and so no one can get out. They can't get food. They begin eating each other in the process. As the Romans begin to break down the walls, the people begin to get more and com- more compacted into the interior of the city, which eventually was the temple. And the, Ro- the Roman ruler, Titus, was so incensed that these people would not give up. When he finally got into the temple, he just put everything to flame. And when he put everything to flame, all the gold that was associated with the temple melted. And you know where it went? It seeped down into the cracks around the stones. And when it cooled, you know what the soldiers did? They turned over all the stones. And not one stone was left upon another because they were gathering the gold to take back for themselves. So precisely what Jesus predicts is going to happen, happens and is fulfilled in 70 A.D. But then there's a transition. That's just a tremor. What Jesus Christ has done at that point is say that's a tremor of something else that's going to come. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, so after 70 A.D., Now, listen to this. This is something worse than what we've just talked about. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then the son of man will come in power and glory. We'll talk more about that next week, but that's the earthquake. And that is an earthquake that you and I should be prepared to to be ready for. And the way we're ready for it is to keep your eyes on Christ. 
So I imagine the disciples just overwhelmed with this information. And then Jesus very typically says, well, let me see if I can give you a couple of pictures that are going to help you clarify it. I've given you the tremor and then I've given you the earthquake. Let me see if I can help you have a picture here. And he does that in the next two sections. Verse 28, he talks about the signs. Learn the lesson from a fig tree like a parable. As soon as you see its branches becoming tender and it puts out its leaves, then you know the summer is near. And so when you see these things taking place, the things that the disciples are asked, asked, say, when will these things take place? When you see this abomination of desolation happen, then you know that the end is near. Verse 30, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then to sort of put a stamp on it, Christ says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words are going to be fulfilled. And so this generation is a 40 year period. And he's looking at the disciples and saying, in this generation, all of the events that I've just described are going to be fulfilled up to 70 A.D. Secondly, but concerning that day, you see, he's making a transition now away from this generation to another day. He's talking about the earthquake now. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake. Someone should have given Edgar Wisnett the memo. You cannot know that day. If Jesus Christ as a human being could not know the end of the day, and he's the interpreter of all of the Old Testament, then those that you see marching around saying, I know when the end is coming, you can just turn those people off. They don't know. What I can tell you for sure is that you should keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Because one day, and we'll talk about this more next week, it's not going to just be the burning down of a city. The whole earth is going to quake. And when Jesus returns for the second time, everyone's going to know it. I'm not going to need an old man in Greenville to run up to me and say, you missed it. The whole world's going to know. The whole world may have missed the tremor. But the whole world's going to know when the earth quakes. And so whatever your particular reading is on this passage. My question to you is, are you ready? Are you awake? You see, it could happen right now. Jesus Christ could return today. Will he find you awake? What is it or who is it that's drawing your attention away from Jesus? You have a family member? You have a professor? You have some anxiety in your life? You have some fear? 
and your head's on a swivel, you're looking around, you keep your eyes on Christ. No matter what may be happening, no matter how big the quake is, Jesus Christ can care for you and take care of you. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I have to admit in preaching this sermon that the earth quaking at your return either seems like a Hollywood movie or some piece of fantasy. It's just hard to imagine the, the reality of you returning Sometimes. And I'm afraid if it's hard for me, it's hard for my friends here. And when it's hard for us to keep our eyes on you, then we keep our eyes on ourselves. What a terrible danger. That our lives are the most important. That things have to turn out the way we want them to turn out. That I can't be possibly dying right now. It's, it's too soon. Maybe the professor's right. Maybe my family member's right. And we're so easily led astray. So I pray that this passage would have the kind of impact I trust that you wanted it to have on your disciples. When the earth quakes, that we will be standing next to the Savior. Lord, you have given us so many things. We take this offering now not as a way to buy our way in, but to remember that you have purchased for us our own salvation. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would bless it. Amen.